Hello friends, this is Derek Sweatman here, lead pastor of Atlanta Christian Church. Today is the fifth Sunday of Lent, and our scripture for today is John chapter 12, verses 20 through 33, and it goes like this. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am... There will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is the word of the Lord. Hope you enjoyed today's message. Thanks for joining us. So last week, uh, the Huffington Post published an article, which means uh, it was like a paragraph with a bunch of screenshots of tweets. And the title of the article was Fox News Appeals to Gen X for Help, and Gen X Tells Fox News Where to Stick It. Here's the opening paragraph. Uh, Fox News tried to enlist Generation X into its manufactured cancel culture war on Monday. It didn't go well. Over the weekend, author Matthew Hennessy wrote a column in the New York Post calling on Generation X to fight the cancel culture, that phrase has lost all meaning, that has become a constant talking point, especially on Fox News. Senator Ted Cruz shared a link to his story, uh, to the story, and naturally Fox News picked up the cause with a direct appeal to Gen X. So here's the initial uh, appeal in one of the tweets. So you can see this coming up here. We have a round of these. So here it is. Fox News correspondent Jillian Turner, cancel culture is spreading like wildfire. There is a call for Gen X to lead the charge to save America from social media mob. Can they do it? Now, before we go through the list of my favorites, these are hilarious. Okay, so basically Gen X, we come out of hiding every now and then, and we came out of hiding for this. And so here are my top 
five favorite responses uh, in tweets. Here we go. First one from the great uh, Patton Oswalt. Throw me the health care and I'll throw you the Mr. Potato Head. So good. Uh, Mara Wilson, I like this one. If there's one thing that Gen X loves, it's being told who they are and what they should do. Amen to that. Uh, Scott Johnson, hit it right on the head here. Gen X here, never has a quote. Less understood the actual Gen X vibe. We can literally can't be bothered. So funny. Uh, this Amanda one, I had to black out the, uh, I had to do the censorship thing for the kids, but you can fill in the blank here. Listen, Gen X was born canceled, no pity, and then again, you can fill in the blank there. And this one is my favorite. Uh, the last one here, the fifth one is my favorite. Uh, the Gen X discourse on here is so lame. We do not want to be talked about. I hate myself for even tweeting this. Please leave us alone. Thank you, Lindsay. So here's the thing. I was born in 1973, which places me in the very middle of Generation X. If you don't know much about us, it's because we're kind of the new lost generation. We're the smallest in number on Earth. Uh, we have the boomers on one side, the millennials on the other side, two of the largest generations on the planet. Uh, we were the most aborted generation, therefore uh, that has something to do with being the smallest. Uh, we grew up during the peak of American uh, divorce rates, so we were largely shaped by an environment where adults weren't around, thus the phrase, we were latchkey kids. So if you don't know what that is, here's a glossary term for you. Uh, we all went to school with shoestring necklaces and our house key on the necklace. This is how we lived our lives, on our own, away from the view of uh, as many adults as possible, and we were generally regarded by the establishment as slackers, which is a great movie if you want to look that up. That's a moniker that we no doubt embraced. Now, just to show you how this works in media, uh, this next picture is just, you could find these anywhere, but anytime the news media puts the generations up on the screen, you'll notice that we're always missing from the list. We don't we don't exist. We are basically an unnoticed people. But we did give the world Pearl Jam, and there is that. Okay, so the, the, the obvious pastoral question is, have you ever felt unnoticed? Again, very obvious question you might hear in a sermon. Have you ever felt unnoticed? Now, sometimes I think being unnoticed is a good thing. I want us to reflect on that this morning. I want us to reflect on the practice of living as much as possible an unnoticed life. Not in the negative sense where we are ignored and passed over. That is, um, that's a life of isolation, of loneliness and depression. That's a negative sense of living an unnoticed life. But I'm talking about the intentional sense where we actively use our lives, our voices, our strengths, to point beyond ourselves to something larger, something greater, and for the Christian, uh, that our lives would point to the grace and the mercy and the work of Jesus. And our story today from the Gospel of John, it draws on this practice. It really pushes it 
in front of us as something to consider. Now, it's a long text. There's some details in here, some architecture that we have to work through to understand it. So let me just give you a few things from the text, and then I want to give us a broader application, and then we'll uh, move on into communion. Uh, it says that the Greeks, if you go back into John verse 20, it says that the Greeks were there for the festival. So this is the festival of the Passover. Uh, this is the last Passover of Jesus's life. So we're getting close to the crucifixion. And the Greeks here are uh, there for the festival. So they're they're kind of what the Bible tends to call like God-fearing Greeks. They're Hellenistic Gentiles who participate in Judaism at some level, but who weren't Jewish in a uh, ethnic sense. Thus, they were there to worship, but they don't really hold that ethnic uh, label as a Jew. And they ask to see Jesus. And the word for see there in Greek is very particular. It has to do with seeing with the mind. So there's a sense of understanding. We want to learn about Jesus. We want to see him not as a celebrity, uh, but as a request of relationship. They're interested in getting to know who this person is, to be a student of Jesus, to be a disciple, you might say. And Jesus says, in response, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, in John's gospel, the word glorified uh, is always pointing to uh, Jesus being, quote, lifted up. And this has to do with both lifted up on the cross, lifted up in his resurrection, and then thirdly, lifted up in the ascension at the end of the story. And so, uh, for John, every time you see Jesus being glorified, that's the phrase. It always has to do with those three things, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So Jesus says, the Son of Man will be glorified. I will be lifted up for all to, quote, see. Um, in verses 24 and 26 through 26, uh, let me just read those again. It says, Jesus says, very truly, I, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains just a single grain, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. And so Jesus is essentially saying, I'll tell you about me, yes, but this is also what the Christian life looks like as well. It's a life of getting out of the way of its own self and of removing itself from the center of all things. That is a life somewhat lived as uh, the hands and feet of God in the world. Now, it's a tough passage to read through. It's filled with like old school Jewish idioms and redemption theology, blah, 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 blah. But in the simplest of summaries, what's happening in this scene is twofold. And I want you to hear this as we move on. First, Jesus reminds people that his work and his calling are tied up in the love that God has for the world. If you remember last week, we were in John chapter 3, verse 16, how God loves his creation and how he longs to be in relationship with humanity, giving shape to people's lives and souls, and that this love is not just for Israel, but it's for all people, and not just uh People who love him, but people who are interested in him, people who are not interested in him. It's the whole world. Secondly, Jesus reminds people that following him is to mirror the way that he lives his life, building people's interest 
not in our churches, but in Jesus. And so we wish to see Jesus, the Greeks say. And I love this scene in the story, and John's so good at putting details in here. It says, you know, the Greeks come to the disciples of Jesus, and they tell the disciples of Jesus, we wish to see Jesus. The Greeks have far less interest in the disciples. Their real interest lies in seeing Jesus alone. And after the Greeks ask to see Jesus, and after Jesus gets that message, he turns to his listeners and starts in on this profound, somewhat complicated teaching with the surface level material being about his death and about his resurrection and his ascension, with this underlying layer about how the Christian life will mirror that kind of sacrifice. But he's also responding to the Greeks' arrival as an example of what God is doing again, not just in Israel, but in the whole world. And so the Greeks in this scene, uh, they are an important inclusion in the story. They represent the world that is now coming to Jesus. If you look in verse 19, the Pharisees who are following Jesus around and uh, critiquing and learning and asking questions, the Pharisees then say to one another, you see, you can do nothing Look, the world has come to him or has gone after him. And I love that. So in John 3.16, God comes to the world in the person of Jesus. And in John 12.20, the world is now coming to God through their interest and attraction to Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 32 of our text, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Again, the death, the resurrection, the ascension. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Now, a point of application. The reminder here is this, that Jesus is the one who is lifted up for all to see. Not you, not me, not our church, not anything that Jesus is the one who is lifted up for all to see. The church's job, the church can only point upward, not inward in arrogance, not outward in judgment, only upward in hope. The Greeks don't care about the disciples. They want to see Jesus. And too often we as Christians, as churches, we point inward in arrogance and we point outward in judgment. But the call here is that we point upward in hope. We must remember that the world's opinion of Jesus is first its opinion of us. That's just the way it is. People have an opinion of Jesus based on their opinion of us. Now, some of you may say, that's right, and that's why everybody hates Jesus. But you want to ask yourself, too, am I portraying the same level of grace and mercy that people need to see in me so that when they think of Jesus, they think of that. Sometimes we trade fundamentalisms. We leave one fundamentalism and we become a fundamentalist in something else. We leave a judgmental environment so that we might become judgmental in other environments. But that's where the whole thing falls apart. That's the rat race we can't win. And so Jesus comes along here and says, look, it's real simple. Just point to me. I'm the one that is being lifted up. Not you, not me, not the church, 
not the way we behave, not the way we're perfect, not the way we curate our persona. Everything points to Jesus. We must remember that the world's opinion of Jesus is first its opinion of us. And if there's a benediction here, it's that we may live such a life that builds interest in Jesus, not in us. That we would interact with the world in such a way that our lives raise awareness of something and someone beyond ourselves. That we might use our voices and our strengths to make clearer the pathway to Jesus. And that we would learn the behaviors of humility, of service to others, of standing not in the way of Jesus, but off to the side so that the pathway to him is more open. And here's the thing uh, about somehow trying to uh, win people to Jesus through our perfection as Christians. We're never going to master this. Even the thing that I just said, that we would live such a life that would build interest in Jesus, we're never going to master this. It's just too difficult. You know this to be the case with anything. The closer you get, the closer in you get with any community, your work community, your community of friends, uh, some recreation community, if you're on a team, you play ball, whatever, the closer you get, the higher you get in that community, your fitness community, whatever classes you're taking at the gym, the more involved you get, some nonprofit that you work with, the more uh, insider you get with any community, including the church, the more you begin, if you're honest, the more you begin to see the cracks, the more you begin to see the way the things are flawed. Um, this might be perhaps why we change realms so much in our lives, why we jump from job to job to job to job, church to church to church to church, relationship to relationship to relationship. We're not comfortable with the realities that everybody is broken and that every community is not perfect not just the church, all communities. And so we have this reality that we're never going to master this way of life, and it just becomes too difficult. Our benediction that we say every week, and Lindsay reads this at the end of the service, and you'll hear this today again, but the very last line says, send us now into the world in peace and grant us strength and courage to love and to serve you with gladness and singleness of heart through Christ our Lord. Amen. So it's about that kind of life. And I think serving is what we do because we fail with our words. We fail with the, our personal lives. Serving is a good reaction to that. Serving is a way of uh, replacing our words with something sometimes better than our words. We support the Bread Coffee House at Emory. I've quoted this before. I love their little value statement of where it says, when talk is cheap, our sermon is hospitality. And that's a very Jesus-minded uh, way of thinking. And the very next scene in John is Jesus washing the disciples' feet and telling them, this is what I want you to go and do in your world. The courage to love and to serve and to lift up Jesus, not Ourselves. So let me close with the very last few sentences of Mere Christianity from C.S. Lewis. He writes, Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. 
Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Grace and peace. Enjoy your breakouts, and we'll see you on the other side. Hey, Jaw, I'll 